I read this past week of a of a peasant in Bucharest who uh, came to his rabbi and said, Rabbi, conditions are simply terrible. There are nine of us in one room, and uh, it's just awful. And the rabbi said, so bring in the goat. And I said, bring in the goat? He said, yes, bring in the goat. So he brought the goat in to live. And uh, a week later, the rabbi saw the man, and he said, how are things going? The man said, they're terrible. The goat smells. The place is filthy. The rabbi says, so get rid of the goat. So the man put the goat outside. And the next week, he saw the peasant, and he said, how are things going? The man said, great, now that there are only nine of us living in the room. <laughs> and I thought when I heard that, that's uh, illustrative of... Uh, the way the Lord changes things, he doesn't always see fit to change our circumstances. Sometimes the greater miracle is that he changes our attitude toward the circumstances. Uh, some of you this past week have sustained some big losses, uh, financial losses. And uh, you keep waiting for a miracle to happen, a letter to be delivered from you to your front door from some long-lost relative who died and left you enough money to cover all of your losses. But uh, that's not necessarily the way God meets our needs. He certainly is well able to, uh, to solve your problem in that manner. But the greater miracle may be a, a change of attitude toward your loss and the conviction that you have an eternal and enduring possession, as Hebrews puts it. That's the uh, approach of so much of Scripture, and it's the approach of the passage that we have uh, in front of us this morning, Isaiah 50. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to that chapter. The setting of, of Isaiah 50, along with all of these uh, final chapters in the book, Isaiah 40 through 66, are the exile. Little Judah was in pain, had been taken into captivity by Babylon, had been there for some time, and the whole experience was uh, very painful. They likened themselves to a woman who's been jilted. They thought that God had divorced them. In uh, Isaiah 54, a few chapters away, Six, Isaiah says, The Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like the wife of one's youth when she is rejected. One of the worst things you can do to a woman is, uh, is divorce her. The feeling of rejection is total, and that's exactly the way Israel felt. They thought that the Lord had jilted them. But the force of uh, verse 1 is to assure them that uh, the Lord had not put them away. It, the exile had not come as a result of his initiative. Where, he says, is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away. In those days when uh, a man put his wife away, he was required to write a bill of divorce, which in, the, in essence laid the guilt, the, the blame, on him. It was a way of saying to society that it was his responsibility for putting this woman away. It was to protect her in the society of that time. 
But uh, God says, you can't produce this bill of divorcement because it is not I who walked out on you, you walked out on me. And then he changes the metaphor slightly. To whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions, your mother, that is Zion. Uh, the term mother is used here as a symbol for Zion, Mount Zion, which in turn is a symbol of, of uh, Israel. And again, this goes back to a custom of that day when someone was in debt. If they couldn't pay their, their creditor, they often would take their children away from them and sell them into slavery to repay, repay the debt. It's an inhuman custom, but it's one that was widely practiced in the ancient world. And God says, it's not I who sold you, you sold yourself. It's because of your sins. I haven't turned my back on you. I haven't rejected you. You've rejected me. And furthermore, when I called you back from exile, you didn't respond. Everything was ready to come back to the land. But you didn't come. In verse 2, why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. Their pain had so paralyzed them they were unable to respond to the Lord. Their suffering had clouded their appreciation of the power of God. He goes back to the experience of the Exodus and reminds them they had the power then to dry up the sea, the Red Sea, and bring them out of exile at that point in their history. And he had, had brought about a, a slaughter of the Egyptians that's uh, symbolized here as the sky in mourning. That's a typical Oriental hyperbole, exaggeration used for emphasis. The skies mourn with the great slaughter of, of the Egyptians. I did it once. I brought you out of exile once. I can do it again. But their pain had demoralized them and immobilized them. Have you ever felt that way? Perhaps you're feeling that way this, this morning. You, you know, at least in your mind, that God has infinite power at his disposal. He can get us out of any situation. He can grant us his power for any set of circumstances, but sometimes we find it difficult to lay hold of that, of that power. And that's what had happened. But in the midst of this situation, the uh, servant speaks in verse 4, The Lord God has given me, in contrast to my countrymen, the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. The uh, servant experienced the same struggle and pain as his fellow countrymen. But in contrast to them, he was able to give comfort. He could sustain the weary with a word. Now, um, the term that's translated disciple here is a word that's normally used and was used in those days to describe someone who was placed under the discipline of a rabbi or a scholar, a teacher and his authority was imposed on him. He, he was to learn certain things from that individual, and that discipline was always very harsh, demanding, required a great deal. But he says the result of it all is that I'm able now to sustain the weary. I've learned how to give help to my weary fellow exiles. 
Uh, I don't know how many of you are Pooh buffs, but I've always enjoyed the uh, story of Winnie the Pooh when he ate too much honey in Rabbit's Hole and got stuck on his way out. And if you remember the story, Christopher Robin and Tigger and Owl and all of his friends gathered out in front of the hole, and while Pooh was reducing, his girth had increased so much he couldn't get out of the hole, and they had to wait for him to reduce. And as he, as they waited, they sang sustaining songs to him. And this is what the servant is saying. He has learned through some course of instruction to sing sustaining songs to others, to give comfort to people that are weary, oppressed, hurting, downtrodden, fearful. Now, I must confess that uh, until I studied this passage this past week, I, I really did not understand what he was saying because I've always thought in the past that the process of instruction was uh, the Lord awakening the servant morning after morning to hear the word as the word was taught by the Father to the servant. And, of course, that's true. We do learn to give comfort to one another by listening to the word. As God opens our ear to hear his word, we're able to give wise counsel to others. But what I missed is that uh, the last part of verse 4, the last two lines of verse 4 is really a symbol. He says, I'm like a scholar who wakes up every day and goes to the classroom and learns so I can give help to others. But the curriculum is not mere instruction out of the word. It's described in verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. It's the pain that our Lord experienced. He went through the school of hard knocks. That's how he learned to give comfort to others. We talk a lot about how the Lord increases our faith and uh, the part that we play in that process. And we all know that... Uh, Reading the scriptures is important. Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the, by the word of God. And as we read the word, our faith is enhanced. And prayer plays a part in that process. And fellowship, those are all things that we do. But uh, the question that we never ask ourselves is what does God do? What is his part in the process? And what he does is permit us to go through times of pain and we learn to cooperate with him and that's how he enhances our life and our ministry we all want to be useful we want to be fruitful we want our lives to count for something we want to amount to something how does it happen merely by the intake of the word reading the word studying it listening to others teach it yes that's a part of the process but we never really learn until we go through some painful experience where we have to apply the truth and that's when we begin to learn to be of help to others. There are several figures that are used in the Bible to describe that process. One is drought. In those times when uh, life just dries up. There's nothing particularly wrong. You can't put your finger on any sin in your life. At least there's, there's no sin that you cherish and you're holding on to. But life just seems empty and dry and boring and monotonous and the heavens are brass and, and you get nothing from the scriptures. 
Ruth Bell Graham describes it this way, not, not fears I need deliverance from today, but nothingness, inertia, skies gray and windless. No sun, no rain, no stab of joy or pain, no strong regret, no reaching after, no tears, no laughter, no black despair, no bliss. Deliver me today, she says, from this. Just that spirit of inertia, boredom, and dullness. But uh, when those times hit, it's not a sign of disfavor. It's an indication that God wants you to put your roots down deep into Him. Jeremiah and his tree simile describes it like this. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his arm and whose heart turns away from the Lord, for he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that puts its roots down in time of drought and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. And it will not be anxious in the dry year, nor cease to yield fruit. That's what God is doing to us, for us, through these times when everything seems bleak and gray and drab and monotonous and nothing seems to be happening. He's teaching us to put our roots down deep into Him and trust Him, whether we have any good feelings or good emotions that, that accompany that faith or not. There's another figure that's used frequently in Scripture to describe that process. It's fire, the idea of testing, trial by fire, as Peter puts it. Don't think it a strange thing when you're tried, but rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, because this is a trial by fire to approve you, to strengthen you. Now, the figure that, that Isaiah uses here is one of a beating. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spit, spitting. Now the far and typological fulfillment of that prediction is, uh, are the events that surrounded the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. He actually went through this experience. His pain was inflicted upon him. But uh, the near fulfillment was the servant himself during the time of the exile who apparently was rejected by his countrymen and manhandled and mistreated by them. And he says, it's this that taught me how to give help to others. That's how I learned to be a source of comfort. Now what he saw as a backdrop to his pain is described in verses 7 and following. It actually begins with the last line of verse 6. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I'm not disgraced. The word actually means wounded. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will wear out like a garment, the moth will eat them. What he, what he sees in the background of his, of his suffering and his hurt, his pain, is the fact that God loves him. God's not against him. God is for him. He's not necessarily being buffeted for his faults, but it's all 
part of the process that God is using to make him more fruitful and useful. God doesn't delight in his suffering. A bit later in Isaiah, in chapter 64, he says, In your affliction, I was afflicted. He experienced what the servant experienced. He knows what you're going through. And uh, the pain that you're experiencing is not a sign of God's disfavor. He hasn't turned away from you. This is the passage that Paul quotes in, in Romans 8 when he concludes, If God is for us, who in the world can be against us? He doesn't delight in my pain. He suffers with me in my pain. He's not punishing me. This is not punitive necessarily. It's all a part of the loving process to conform us to his image. I remember once when Brian was about two years of age, he uh, uh, became quite ill and he was dehydrated. We had to take him to the doctor and they were trying to start an intravenous uh, drip in his arm in the hospital and, and uh, the doctor couldn't get the uh, needle in, in the vein and I was holding him down on the emergency table and uh, the thing that perhaps hurt me worse than anything was the, was the look in Brian's eyes. Somehow he, he believed that I was in cahoots with those that were trying to hurt him and I could see that so clearly but it didn't delight me that he was hurt and I wanted to assure him that I'm not corroborating with these men that are trying to hurt you except to the extent that it needs to be done to help you. And that's what we need to know. If you lost everything last week, if life has turned against you, if things are tough, it's not a sign of God's disfavor. He loves you. He identifies with you in your pain. doesn't delight him that you're suffering. Everything that's happened is screened through his love and designed for a particular purpose. The second thing we need to know is that this um, suffering is not something negative. It's not punitive. It's not punishment. It's positive. Our tendency when we suffer is to go back to something in our life that we've done, something we did in junior high, and think that God is punishing me for that. It is true that God does punish sin if we, if we rebel and persist in rebellion. God may have to discipline in a, in a punitive way. But the very fact that life is tough doesn't mean that God is punishing us for, for some sin in the past. If we've judged it and, and put it away, the pain is simply, again, part of the process, the positive process that God is using to change us. God does not change us by magic. He doesn't wave a wand over our head and change our character. The transformation of character is always slow and painful. We can't become holy in a hurry. It takes time and training, and sometimes God uses rough instruments to shape us. But we'll blossom and thrive if we accept it. And we see it for what it is. A positive thing that God is, is doing in our life. But it will only change us if we choose to permit it to change us. If we allow God to do the work that he set out to do. Even all the child books that I've written, secular written, no, I've never written a child raising book. 
I used to have three theories of child raising. Now I have three sons and no theories. <laughs> In all the books that I've read on child rearing, uh, it seems to me there is a there's a fundamental misconception in all of them. Uh, one exception would be John White's book, Parents in Pain. It's the idea that there is an absolute correlation between what we as parents do and what the child does. The assumption seems to be that if we pray and we set limits and we're understanding, and uh, if we discipline in a proper way, then our children will always respond. But that's not true. The Bible doesn't guarantee that sort of thing. That's Western cause and effect thinking. We got that from Aristotle, not from the Bible. There is a, a proverb that says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. But that's not a promise. That's a general statement of truth. That's what all the Proverbs are. And we all know parents that have, that have done the very best they could do and they've produced rebels. Case in point is Adam. God was the best of fathers, but Adam rebelled. The Lord was the best of disciples, but Judas rebelled. Because there's a monkey in the works. We're human, and we can choose. We don't have to respond to training. Our children don't have to respond. We may do the very best that we can, and they still choose to, to rebel. And the same is true of us. It's God's intention to train us and equip us and prepare us for life. But we may not choose it. We may rebel against it. Turn with me to, to Hebrews 12. There's a parallel passage there, the New Testament parallel to the truth in Isaiah 50, verse 7, Isaiah, or Hebrews 12, 7. Remain under discipline, he says. The New American Standard translates, it's for discipline that you endure. But I think the better translation is remain under discipline. Don't run from it. Don't try to avoid it. Because God is dealing with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you were without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Do you ever wonder sometimes why non-Christians have it so much better than you? Well, here's one, at least a partial explanation. Why do you have it so tough? It's because you're a son. And the father disciplines sons. And if we're not under discipline, we may not be sons. Furthermore, he says, We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. That's the purpose of it all. It's purposeful. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. No one likes the pain, but we can see through the process what God is doing. And if we submit to it, then it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. 
works for us instead of against us. What does this mean in practical terms? Well, it means when we're going through the pain, we say, Father, I trust you. I believe in you. I praise you for what you're doing in my life. And we don't get fretful and angry and resentful and bitter and lash out at God and everyone else around us. We, we let it work. We accept what God is doing and we submit ourselves to the Father of Spirits, as he puts it, that, that we might live. And if we do that, instead of becoming restive and angry, bitter, it'll work for us. Now, it's not like flipping a switch. We have to struggle to submit. And sometimes we have to struggle over and over and over again because the attacks are intermittent and relentless. But if we submit to it, it works. And it not only changes us, it makes it possible for us to change others. What we don't see is that what God is doing for us is often intended for others as well. As Paul puts it, death works in me that life might work in you. As I'm put to death by the circumstances of life, I'm learning, I'm being trained by it, so that I'm able to give comfort to you and you can comfort others. I can comfort others. Which is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed is the Father of mercy, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our distress, so we can comfort others with the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. You know what will make you a tender, sensitive counselor and helper? It's the pain that you've experienced. That's what does it. There isn't any other way. I wish there were. But there isn't any other way. We've all from time to time sung the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And uh, perhaps we don't know the uh, story behind that hymn. It was written by a woman uh, whose name is Helen Lemuel. She just went to be with the Lord recently at the ripe old age of 92. What you may not know is that when she was a young woman, her husband walked off and left her poverty-stricken. She didn't have a cent. And he never paid her a dime. With a house full of children, and she was blind. And she struggled with that for a time and then came to terms with it. And she wrote the words of that sustaining song, Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's life for a look at the Savior and more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know how she learned that sustaining song? She had to go through a lot of pain. What if she had rebelled against it and refused to submit to the Father of Spirits? She would have never sung, sung that song and neither would we. As far as I know, that's the only hymn she ever wrote. I know of no others. But what an impact that sustaining song has had on others. She learned that out of her pain. And from her vantage point now, with the Lord, she could look back on her life, and I'm sure she would say, of all the experiences of my life, the most significant was the time when my husband walked out. Because it was through that painful experience that I was comforted by God and I was able to give comfort to others. Do you believe that?